Good morning. For the next few weeks, we're going to study the book of Philippians. So please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Before we get into the text itself, let's go over some historical background. Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote Philippians. When he first got to Rome in AD 60, he was under house arrest, which meant he could stay in his own rented house under the watchful eye of a Roman guard. Things had changed since then. He was now in a dungeon in Caesar's palace under considerably less hospitable conditions. He was, in fact, in chains. But it wasn't the first time. He had spent two years in a prison in Caesarea before being confined in Rome. Since Paul was a Roman citizen awaiting trial, still uncondemned, he could send and receive mail and could receive guests and gifts. He did not likely get many visitors, but one day an old acquaintance showed up at his cell. It was Epaphroditus with a wonderful care package from the church he had planted in Philippi. It had been a dozen years since Paul had established that church, and yet I'm sure he remembered it like it was yesterday. How could he forget? From Acts chapter 16, we learned that on Paul's second missionary journey, at least a dozen years before, way back in about 50 AD, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy got on a ship in Troas, the site of the famous Trojan War hundreds of years earlier. Paul had received a vision telling him to go to Macedonia, and that's exactly what they were about to do. Their ship sailed to the small seaport village of Neapolis the next day, and from there they traveled nine miles inland to Philippi, one of the leading cities of Macedonia. Whenever Paul arrived in a new town, his custom was to begin his ministry preaching in the local synagogue, at least until they threw him out. Unfortunately, Philippi was a Roman colony, and so had few Jewish residents, and they didn't even have a synagogue. Paul got word, however, that on the Sabbath, a group of Jewish women regularly met for prayer by a river just outside the city. So when Saturday came, Paul and his companions met with these women down by the river, which was really not much more than a creek. As they talked to the women, they soon discovered that one of the ladies was a businesswoman from Thyatira, a dealer in expensive purple cloth, and a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul shared the gospel with her, and the Lord opened her heart to the message. Then she and her members of her household were baptized. She persuaded Paul and his friends to stay with her family at their house while they ministered in the city. One day when Paul and his group were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a demon-possessed female slave who earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. After following Paul around day after day, annoying him, Paul finally realized what was going on. He turned to the woman and said to the demon, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. The demon left her, and so did her ability to tell the future. When the girl's owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the city leaders. They charged Paul and his friends with throwing the city of Philippi in an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept and practice. The crowd joined in on verbal attacks, and the town leaders ordered Paul and Silas to be punished. 
They were publicly stripped of their clothing, tied up and then beaten with rods. After a severe beating, they were thrown into the inner cell of the prison with their feet, feet firmly fastened in stocks. Now, I don't know about you, but I would probably be wondering if maybe this ministry was not God's will after all. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And suddenly a violent earthquake shook the prison. The prison doors came open and the chains fell from the walls. The jailer, assuming that the prisoners had fled, was about to kill himself with his own sword, thinking that suicide was a far better alternative than what the Romans had in store for a jailer whose prisoners got away. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer got saved that night. He even invited Paul and Silas over to his home for a meal and to wash their wounds. In fact, the jailer's whole household was saved and baptized. The next day, the leaders of the city sent officers to release Paul and Silas. But amazingly, Paul refused to go. He told the officers, they illegally beat us publicly and threw us in prison without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come personally and escort us out. When the city's leaders learned that they had beaten Roman citizens without a trial, they were terrified. The Romans could strip them of their power and the city of its freedom over such a miscarriage of justice. So to appease Paul and Silas, the city leaders personally came to escort them out of the prison. Paul and Silas then went to Lydia's house and met with the new Philippian church, which probably consisted mostly of Lydia's family and friends and the jailer's family and friends. And after encouraging the church, they started down the Ignatian Way, the main Roman road through Macedonia, paved with flat-top rocks, and headed toward Thessalonica. Now, as I said, that had been about a dozen years ago. Since then, Paul had been in prison for two years in Caesarea and now for a year or two more in Rome. And now all of a sudden, Epaphroditus from Philippi shows up at his cell. To see a friendly face bringing news of the love the Philippian church had for him was a blessing beyond compare. And I'm sure the care package didn't hurt either. The Philippians had, in fact, sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul's needs while he was in prison. In those days, prisons didn't offer much care to prisoners beyond minimal food and water. The prisons were often dependent on outside help from friends and relatives. Paul later learned that Epaphroditus had actually risked his life to come to Paul. While helping Paul in Rome, however, Epaphroditus became seriously ill, even close to death. And now that he had recovered, Paul felt the need to send him home. Paul decided to have Timothy accompany Epaphroditus home, and he wanted to send a thank you letter for the care gift. 2,000 years later, we still have that thank you letter. We call it Philippians. Now, before we jump into the text itself, let's pray. Lord, guide our hearts and minds this morning and draw us into a closer relationship with you through your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read verses 1 and 2. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, there are two leadership titles in the church, overseers, sometimes called elders, and deacons. Overseers or elders are charged mostly with the spiritual leadership of the church, while deacons are charged mostly with physical resources of the church. Many Baptist churches today believe that the pastor is the only elder or overseer in any particular church. Other Baptist churches believe in a plurality of elders. They think that churches should have an elder board and that the pastor is just one of the elders. Paul is writing to just one church in Philippi, but notice that this verse, that in verse 1, the church has elders, plural. So I tend to think that the pastor is just one of the elders or overseers. Paul's letter is addressed to God's holy people at Philippi together with their overseers and deacons. So much for Paul's greeting. Now let's get into the letter itself. Let's read verses 3 to 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now notice how in verse 5, Paul speaks of their partnership in the gospel. He's not only talking about the care package they sent, which was not their first, by the way. He was also talking about the fact that they shared in his ministry, both in prayer support and in financial support. It's like when you pray and give support to our missionaries, you have a partnership in their spread of the gospel as well. In verse 7, Paul restates this by saying that whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. In verse 6, Paul says he's confident that God, who began the good work of salvation in them, will carry it on to completion until Jesus comes back. There are passages in the Bible that warn us not to fall away from the faith. Passages like Hebrews 6 and John 15. There are serious eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus. We must continue to remain or abide in Jesus to be saved. Calvinists call that perseverance of the saints. But that remaining or abiding in Jesus is not something we do in our own strength. Paul says he is confident that God will continue that good work in our lives. In verse 7, Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. To say, I have you in my heart, is just another way of saying, I love you. Paul elaborates on this in verse 8, saying, God can testify how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ? <laughs> That's a lot of affection. Then in verses 9 to 11, Paul offers a rather complicated prayer for the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Okay, let's unpack this. First, in verse 9, Paul is praying that their love may abound more and more. In other words, that they would have more and more love. Love is often a rather difficult concept to nail down. We talk about how much we love our spouse, but we almost we also talk about how much we love a particular TV show. I don't think that's the same kind of love. So Paul doesn't just pray that their love would abound more and more. He prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, we're not just free to define love however we want. And at least not... <laughs> if we want to be our love to be acceptable to God. Let me give an ex- a hypothetical example. Herman has a female co-worker whose husband recently died. This co-worker thinks the world of Herman. She's hurting and desperately wants Herman's physical love and affection. And Herman complies. Although Herman is married, he justifies his adultery by concluding that he's just loving his neighbor as himself. No. Love that is acceptable to God has to be according to knowledge and insight that comes from God's word. Love cannot just be however we want to define it. So Paul prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love that is acceptable to God must be according to the knowledge of God's word. But for Paul, love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight is not an end in itself. So Paul prays that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Now, let me pursue a a little rabbit trail for a few minutes. As Christians, we are very interested in God's will for our lives. I've heard God's will described almost as a bullseye with our goal being to be right in the center of God's perfect will. We just have to figure out what that will is. So we devise criteria to figure out God's will. Sheila and I once knew a couple uh, leaders in our church in Delaware who got saved sometime after they were already married. Even though they were happily married, they were convinced that they must be out of God's perfect will for their lives because they weren't saved before they got married and therefore had not sought God's perfect will for who they should marry. Tragic. God's will is not necessarily a bullseye at all. God's will is like a big area with boundary markers. If it's violating the clear teaching of God's word, you can be sure that it's not God's will. So, for example, God tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you are a Christian and are thinking of getting married to someone who is not a Christian, you can be quite sure that is not God's will for your life. You don't even have to pray about it. The answer is no. But within the boundaries of Scripture, there may be all kinds of options you could choose and still be in God's will. For example, sometimes missionaries face the very real possibility of serious persecution and even death if they stay where they are. So should they stay or run? What is God's will for them? 
They could look to the Bible, but there are cases where Paul, for instance, runs away from persecution like he did in Damascus. But there are other cases where he deliberately runs right into persecution like he did at Jerusalem. So which of those biblical examples should the persecuted missionaries follow? Now, by now, many of you may be wondering, what on earth does this any of this have to do with Philippians? Just this. In verses 9 and 10, Paul prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Knowing the will of God is not about finding a bullseye. It's often about what about discerning what is best within the boundaries set by the Bible. And that may not be the same for everyone. For example, some missionaries may decide that love compels them to leave temporarily so they can live and come back and minister another day. Other missionaries may decide that love compels them to stay and die with their neighbors. Paul's prayer for our missionaries would be that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best. And by what is best, Paul doesn't necessarily mean what is best for us personally or what is most safe for us. He means what's best for the kingdom of God. So by application, God wants your love to grow more and more, filled with the knowledge and insight that comes from his word, so you can discern what is best for the kingdom of God when you are faced with all of the various issues that life throws at you. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 10, he continues asking that the Philippians may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul talks about being blameless here, I don't think he means sinless. First John says, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. Luke 1.16 describes Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, saying, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That doesn't mean they were sinless. It means that they generally lived a lifestyle which was pleasing to God and in which they were not willfully violating God's commands. And when they messed up and sinned, as we all do, they repented and offered the sacrifices. They were observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, as Luke puts it. So in verse 11, when Paul prays that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, I think this is exactly what Jesus talked about in John 15 when he talked about remaining or abiding in him and bearing much fruit. Among other things, that fruit involves treating others the way we would want to be treated, helping others, being encouraging and compassionate. I'm sometimes concerned that we evangelicals focus so much on salvation by grace apart from works that we ignore all the Bible says about living a holy life, doing good works. We don't do good works in order to be saved, of course. The Bible does emphasize doing good works. Ephesians 2.10, for example, after emphasizing how we are saved by grace apart from works, Paul adds, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Paul is just reflecting the teaching of Jesus, who said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Notice that the ultimate concern is not that we get the praise for our good works, but that people see our good works and praise God. And that's Paul's concern as well. Verse 10 and 11 again, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so what lessons do we learn from this passage? Well, first, God wants our love to grow more and more, filled with the knowledge and insight that comes from his word, which, by the way, means that we need to be filled with his word, knowing more and more about his word, so that we can discern the best decisions to make when we are faced with all the various issues that life throws at us. Second, good works don't save us, but God wants his people to do good works. As Paul puts it, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are saved solely by your grace through faith in Christ. Help us more and more to express our gratitude for that wonderful salvation by doing good works so that you will be glorified. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.